This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Greetings to all our listeners who have followed us so far on the series System Change, Not Climate Change. Today we'll be talking about collapse. From the UK, we will hear from two thinkers actually facing the collapse of the system that is killing us. Dr. Gail Bradbrook is one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion. She's speaking in July at the Glastonbury Deep Adaptation Festival. And then a small extract from Dr. Jim Bendel, who's famous for his deep ecology and adaptation work, and he's speaking at a MIR forum from Bali. He's the founder of the Institute for Leadership and Sustainability at the University of Cumbria. And to round it off, we have an interview courtesy of Nick Breeze in England. Um, he, he, he produces Climate Gen. It's spelled G-E-N-N, and you should look up that name, Climate Gen, for all his other podcasts, which are brilliant. This one is with Dr. Julia Steinberger. She's at the University of Lausanne, and it's a shortened version of his long talk with her about the titanic struggle against transnational companies who, in my view, are climate criminals. So we'll start with Gail Bradbrook. If this is a story about our islands, it is a story for the whole world. So I want to talk about what next for the climate and nature movements of the global north. And obviously the short answer is, who knows? Uh, but this is what I think at the moment. I'd like to start by celebrating this launch of Professor Jen Bendel's new book, breaking together. I think it's going to be an important piece of work for helping to birth a new phase in our movements. <clears throat> I've been so blessed to help birth Extinction Rebellion. The political theorist Hannah Arendt said that power lies in the collective and when you can feel it, it's beautiful and it's sexy. The alarm has been thoroughly sounded, the public has heard it and wants change, targets for decarbonising have been set, and in many ways, of course, not much has really happened. The UK's carbon footprint is actually going up, you can check that out on DEFRA's website. Uh, the destruction of nature is accelerating, fossil fuel and other corporate interests are push pushing back in a new wave of tactics, you know, it's called discourses of delay. We're in a meta-crisis, we all know that, that's why we're here, and Professor Bendel shows we've already entered a state of collapse. You know, there's crises in mental health, in, in the climate nature, in inequality, a media system that spreads polarities and fake news, looming crises in our food and financial systems, and also the new threats that are emerging now, or next couple of years from artificial intelligence. Do ask me a question about that if you want. Um, the extraction an exploitation of globalised neoliberalism and neocolonialism has really come home 
it now includes social murder within the UK. Last year, there were 40,000 excess deaths. That's deaths that weren't expected over the five-year average. So to solve any problem, you have to really understand the nature of the problem. You have to really understand the root causes. And I, I am, I have to say, struck at times by a seeming lack of curiosity within our movements about this. There appears to be a desire to keep it simple. Uh, we need to wake people up to pressure the governments for change. I don't believe that will work. And I have to say, as a founder of, uh, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, I don't think any of our fellow co-founders thought that either. It was a campaign with simple messaging in it to get things moving. Um, I don't believe it will work because I don't believe it's founded in addressing the complexity of the predicament that we're in. So here's a foundational question from my point of view. Why would a species participate in the destruction of the life support systems that it relies on for its well-being? To understand this complex situation, we need to understand the nature of our species, Homo sapiens. We have been a highly flexible species, adapting to our environment and creating cultures to support our flourishing. We've learned from our mistakes. We've lived in many different ways, including systems of self-governance. We have found ways to be with and in life that makes life more beautiful, more abundant. We have done our job well in the past as what's called a hyper-keystone species and an ecosystem engineer. I won't get into explaining those. They're in Jem's book, actually. Um, but they're, they're species that impact uh, significantly the environment that they're in. Positively. <laughs> we are also a species that believes the stories we tell ourselves. And we're living in a story, it's really what you call a doxa. It so, has been so common sense that we're not to even think about it. Um, and it's a story that says we always need more, and this is going to be achieved by something called progress. The story says that we live in an inanimate machine world, and that human beings are fundamentally selfish, and so we can't be trusted to act well. The story says we need the power of financial markets to control us, the idea being that they'll create some optimal conditions once they've been fully unleashed. And I think there's a shadow in environmentalism that agrees with part of this story that says humans are the problem, nature would be better off without us. That kind of self-hatred isn't going to help us. As DNA Nation grandmother Pat McCabe points out, humanity has got low self-esteem right now. We think that everything we touch we destroy, but it's not so. It's because we've agreed upon and we're acting within a certain paradigm. It's a paradigm of control and domination dressed up in modernity's story of civilization and progress. Consumerism, colonialism, racism, climate and ecological tipping points, and the political economy of rapacious extraction, lacking functional democratic oversight, are all symptoms of this dominant domination paradigm. So how did we get here? As psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist, and also the work of Jill Balty-Taylor that got mentioned earlier, has articulated, based on reviews of thousands of scientific papers, human beings, like other animals, have two very distinct hemispheres in our brain, on the left and the right-hand sides, and they have very distinct roles. We might like to think of our left as our onboard computer. It's very skilled in abstraction, checks data, it makes guesses, and it represents reality to us. We're not in reality when we're in the left hemisphere. It's representing it to us. Um, especially when we have to make rapid choices and we feel under threat. So is that thing that's rustling in the bush... Is it potential food? Is it coming to eat us? Or is it one of our children? What we do really matters. The left hemisphere tries to keep us safe and well. And in its rightful place, it's in service to our right hemisphere, which is able to reside in the flow and presence of life. The right hemisphere is in a constant process of relating, influencing, and being in life, and being influenced. It's in life as a presence, so experiencing the aliveness of life, that's what the right hemisphere is about. 
There's peace in the right hemisphere. There's the urge to collaborate. There's a sense of vision. It's where humour comes from, playfulness and empathy. With connection to the wisdom of our hearts, our guts, our minds and bodies as one. Ian's work is very much on the hemispheres. This is focused, but of course it's, it's the whole body. It's been said that the left hemisphere is more rational. It's not so. It makes profound mistakes that have significant impacts, especially when we're subject to historic trauma and ongoing unmanageable levels of stress. This is when the left hemisphere pathologizes. It can be angry, the left hemisphere. And it has the uh, urge when stressed to control, to dominate, to withdraw, to fight. It wants certainty, simplicity and comfort. It's the voice in our head that judges us and others and tells me to eat chocolate. It wants to grasp at things. It's susceptible to addiction. It can tend towards narcissism and forms of denial. It will hang on to whichever story supports its need for control and comfort, whether that flies in the face of evidence or empathy. Sound familiar, eh? So the current polycrisis and creeping collapse that humanity is now in is at least 5,000 years in the making. It's postulated to have resulted from collective traumatic experiences in certain parts of the world associated actually with climatic events. We have a growing understanding of what people do when they're under stress. The autonomic nervous system kicks in. You choose from fight, flight, fawn or freeze. And when stress is severe and prolonged, a form of shutdown occurs. We enter a state of separation from innate parts of ourselves, from each other and from our environment. A pathology that seeks comfort, certainty and control kicks in. In other words, the left hemisphere takes over. No bad thing for the short term, but a disaster when it takes over the driving seat and builds modernity in its image. So this is all a fancy science-based way of saying we're in a spiritual crisis. A few thousand years ago, communities under stress started to dominate and control the land and people, especially women and children. Extraction and theft create surplus, and that surplus can be used to shore up power and that power to get more power. It's uh, In systems theory, it's called the success-to-success mechanism. It's a fancy way of saying those that have can get more. But of course, you're in a non-life neurological state. So in that way, domination becomes baked in and everybody gets fucked over one way or another in the process. Our collective trauma expresses itself in many ways, including scarcity thinking, shame, inferiority and or superiority complexes and defaults are organising to what George Lakoff called the strict father value system, which is focused on reward and punishment to get you to behave. You've got your strict father in your own head, right? Having words. It wants, and the wants and pathologies of the left hemisphere have been baked into our systems of governance, economies, culture, media, and education. The pathology has been given a name many years ago. It's called Wetiko by indigenous Algonquin speaking people from Abiyala from America. Wetiko is this cannibalistic spirit that can take over people's minds, leading to selfishness, insatiable greed, and consumption as end in itself. Wetiko has many other names because it's recognised by humanity across the world. So in Buddhism, it's the hungry ghost, it's the rakshasas, in Hinduism, in African traditions, it's Shirugu. And I think the way we talk about in our culture, we've got zombies and vampires, the elites are the vampires and Guess what? We get to be the zombies, you know, a lot of the time. That's shutdown state, right? Um, it systematizes as many sub-pathologies. For example, white supremacy. And in fact, the First Nation peoples have referred to Wetiko as white man's disease. Uh, with awareness of this tendency of humanity, healthy human cultures take care of it. Now, actually, what, I think in Egyptian uh, cultures, there was a headdress. Um, and what it represented it was a snake down the middle that represented the balance of the hemispheres. It's baked into stories, the master and the emissary story, the stories of the two brothers. And what the Haudenosaunee talk about is a need to, collect, to, to cultivate the collective good mind. You have to have practices baked into your culture. And what happens in our diseased culture is they get baked out. So given that we live in 
in my estimation and others, within a pathologized system of systems, we need to understand more about how systems work. They may be created by human interventions and they involve simple rules, like such as interest-bearing debt. I absolutely agree with Jen, that's a super important piece that we need to focus on. But at a certain level of complexity, they can't be controlled anymore. They take over and, and the system takes over and new properties emerge. They contain thresholds or tipping points where, and they absorb some changes, but at some point they flip into a new uh, state or collapse. And they contain positive reinforcing mechanisms in them and negative controlling feedback loops. And so this has been looked in detail, for example, by the academic Jennifer Hinton, who's shown that there are three vicious cycles, feedback loops, within the for-profit economy, which reinforce inequality, consumerism and political capture, uh, leading to the destruction of the biosphere and paving the way for increasing authoritarianism. And then just a bit more bad news and we'll move on. <laughs> on top of this, the left hemisphere has got inbuilt defence mechanisms to protect us from psychological pain. Is how cognitive dissonance works and willful blindness, which is known as the ostrich effect. And these are just fancy ways of talking about deceit and denial. So green growth is not possible, but the system is lying to itself about it now. Um, it uses fancy uh, maths called integrated assessment models. They're based on the uh, economics of um, a neoliberal called Nordhaus, who's been thoroughly debunked, but they're still in the Bank of England's calculations, right? Uh, the insurance and pensions industries are other clear places the system just lie into itself. So making demands of governments and corporations, it can be a communication tool. We're saying, this is what's morally and rationally correct to do. But here's the thing. Let us not carry on reinforcing the belief that business as usual will do what's needed. Let's name it. They can't and they won't do the right thing. Let's just get over ourselves with that. And within that, let's be clearly anti-authoritarian and clearly take a stance against the economics of accumulation and growth for its own sake. So I do ask why our social movements think that continually raising of alarms and getting on the streets to demand change is going to be enough, especially as it includes triggering ourselves into pain and fear bodies. Do we also think we can continue to ignore the barriers to our deeper collaborations, the playing out of divide and rule tactics? So then the question is, what then in the face of this for our social movements in the so-called Western democracies? What I think we need are social movements based on the politics that are very mindful of the wet eco-pathology, uh, systems and collapse. Ones that see the anti-life systems of destruction and both forcefully and mindfully separate from them. That's what the anti-life system's doing. I see it, see it in me, but I'm choosing something else. Each one of us have that choice in the moment and as groups and ongoing. And we know well that change is led by vision. I think it's time to unite within a collective collaborative framework for change, which would also leave space for many ways of doing things, seeing things that are location and culture specific. However, another pathology of the left hemisphere is to lack vision. That's the, it's the job of the right. From its place of pain, in, feels, in feelings of scarcity, separation, soullessness and powerlessness, can't vision. And presumably that's the root of the statement that people can envisage the end of this world more than the end of capitalism. Let's not be troubled by this. There are visionary people, ideas and cultures that we can root into and be nourished by, both current and historic. Let us be fed by our stories of resistance and collaboration for example, the land justice and the abolitionist movements. Let us spend time learning about our histories. And hey, this left hemisphere business is something we can choose. Literally, in the moment, we now have a greater understanding of somatic practices, of the ventral vagal system, to use fancy words, there's breath practices, dance practices, sex and medicine practices that help us to recover our nervous systems. So you can... Uh, 
Learn about the best ones for yourself and the groups that you work within. What helps you to be in life? You know, what are the restorative practices that work for you and your group? Because that is the foundation of whiteness, is not to be in life. It's been done to us, and we get to move on from that and re-choose to connect with life. It's, it's, the one, it's one of the important ways we can pay attention to the system within us and do something about it. And we can also pay attention to the manifestation of the system amongst us and do something about that too. And there's growing understanding of ways to support and practice collaboration. These are the sorts of things that get skipped over in movements in, you know, support, in, in, in sacrifice to the let's get shit done and we feel like we're doing something because we're on the streets. I'm not saying let's not do that. I'm just saying this is more important actually because it's how we do it. Uh, and I want to say that many of these specific points I'm making have been strongly advocated for by visionary leaders of colours and outside of, outside of cultures within Extinction Rebellion. Um, and what I've, so I've learned from them. And what I notice in our Global North movements is the lip service we pay to these leaders, if we even listen, and, and to other struggles and cultures. And I am and have been guilty of that. And it's not something to feel shame about or to stay in a sort of dissociative, avoiding state around. Some of us call that the white glaze. It's just something to, it's, it's to understand that it's a system. It's not our choice. You know, it's, been, it's been done to us, but to notice it. And we can proactively tackle that through practices and processes. And most importantly, through genuinely linking our struggles practically and uniting with our global family. There's a similar story regarding our young ones in a diseased culture that's forgotten the necessity of healthy eldership. We haven't received eldership ourselves, most of us, and so how do we know how to be an elder? We have to relearn that uh, way of being. And, and so, there, of course, there are gaps, and it takes time and effort on both sides to build bridges. If we continue to centre ourselves as minority world, largely racialised as white activists in the story, I believe that we, we are going to fail. We're being called back into relationship to undertake repair and resistance together. Another word for resistance is protection. We protect what we love, and we love those that we're in relationship with. So I've talked a fair amount about systems, and what I am alluding to here is that we are part of a more enduring system than that of capitalist, colonialist modernity. We are, of course, part of the systems of life. This is our birthright. Let us root ourselves into aliveness, reclaiming our role as keystone species and serving life's purpose, which includes composting and adding to the complexity and beauty of life. We can intend to create the conditions for life to thrive by learning from life. And there's a container of love and of spirit that we're being called to co-create. I often say, when I look at, you know, activist friends of mine that are working very hard to build machines to defeat a machine. We, this is a 5,000-year-old machine. We won't defeat it by building a machine. We defeat it. We, we help it to have a good death because it is dying, and we do have this choice. We help it to have a good death by feeling and finding this container together that's the spirit of life. And what a beautiful invitation. Who wouldn't want to be alive now with that invitation and that choice to make? So life thrives because it collaborates and because it learns. And through purpose, collaboration, and learning, what happens in life is that unexpected things emerge. So we can work on the conditions and see what emerges, I also think that we can help to seed things to emerge. And let's then, um, you know, work across different organisations and networks, seeing our shared concerns and these root causes, and then, and then develop some kind of framework together around how, how we see the change, how we see the change. So I'm just giving you an example, because of course it's never one person's to write alone, but I do feel it's time to start naming the vision that we have going forwards. We acknowledge that we are stronger together, bringing our many ways of being, seeing and doing in unified people's power. We will coordinate the stopping of harm 
acting as a multifaceted immune response, a global immune response, which will shut down crime scenes and attack the flow of resources to them. And yes, that does include sabotage, which is best done below the ground, in my view. We assert the need for repair of the harm that has been done. We will found our economies on justice, need and sufficiency, with degrowth economics for global north countries, which have founded in visionary concepts like universal basic services, and growth within sufficiency, sustainable limits in countries below optimal per capita income levels at the moment. We will not be paying unjust debts, bills and rents. We repudiate debts and other extortionate bills. I'm, I'm told that, you know, for everything you, that you buy, that at least 50% of it is paying interest somewhere down the line. We'll build collective solidarity. Here's where that collaboration is needed. Here's where that routing is needed. And it has happened. Mortgage people, you know, they come after you because you can't pay your mortgage in other countries in Spain. A whole political party grew up around that. They said, no, you're not having this person's house back. That's the kind of solidarity we, can, we need to build, right? We had a, some sort of practice with COVID, I guess. So we need safety nets of support so that we can collectively unhook ourselves from this odious extraction from our bodies and from the land and from our wider global family. And as I said earlier in the question, I think we need to really see debt as power. You know, it's actually a handful of people own the world's wealth. Why are we paying them? Uh, what is, what is possible? Of course, they, what happens is you get a crap credit rating. Mine's shocking because I've played around with this three times. No, I have no real problem with it, to be honest, but I don't need a credit rating. What can happen when Global South countries come together and unify? And don't forget, our political system is designed to stop that from happening. Global South leaders who go there, the Kwame Nkrumahs of the world, etc., they get murdered by our politicians, not directly, but by our systems, right? So supporting the sort of modern-day versions of Pan-Africanism and, and deep solidarity from community to community, where we're saying, we're not paying our debts here, Pakistan, and ridiculous that you, anybody would say you need to pay a debt. Right. Uh, just to be slightly technical about this, Jason Hickel talks about it. It's the way to decolonize uh, modern monetary theory. looks at how these countries can create their own money. But you have to have more than one country working together. You need that solidarity. So there's a root here. And actually, the reality is that countries won't be able to afford debts. We won't be able to afford all these bills and mortgages. So we may as well get on with it sooner. We assert that the land under our feet is ours to steward, that it is a common treasury for all. The ownership of excessive tracts of land is unjust and against life. We will reclaim and occupy the lands of our birth, growing food and living lightly. We're forming economic bodies for cooperating and commoning, shaping the way we work together and meet our collective needs. We are upholding and creating structures for people-led governance and law. Our assemblies and our tri tribunals and other bodies to assert the people's rule of law. We do not recognise the governments and the legal structures that destroy life on earth as ours. It's not our government. <laughs> you know, it's an oligarch in power. It's not, it's, it's not my government, right? Uh, we're leaving them behind. We're creating and protecting community, educational and media forms that are, being, that are led by our communities for the benefit of the well-being of the community. And of course, the good, look, the good thing about all this is that the movement's doing all this stuff already, right? Like there's a really strong and, and building land justice movement in this country. We, 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 you don't have to do all this stuff. Like, what's yours to do in it? We found our health on the allo-mothering of our young and the well-being of our land, air and water. We find and protect our ways of collectivate, sorry, we find and protect our ways of cultivating our collective good mind. We remember the medicines of the land and ways to be well through connection. We're growing food locally and tending the well-being of our water. We're building locally and local owned energy and transport infrastructure and reducing our demands. We're working towards a just peace, refusing to participate in unjust conflicts and globally linking, I'll explain that word in a second, globally linking our struggles for peace. So in all of this, as Jem's pointed out, what we're really doing is asserting our right to be truly free. 
And people who are systems experts look at this system, Schmachtenberger being an example, they say there's one uh, direction it's going in towards collapse, there's another in the direction of eco-authoritarian, fascistic, geoengineering, globalist, etc., surveillance, capitalism. What's the third attractor? And I'm saying the third attractor is something that we co-create, this container of vision and love and togetherness, wisdom, agency, and taking charge of our neurophysiology so we can be in life, you know. So there's be specific things then to focus on in our communities, democracy and leadership, you know, mapping who's doing what in a community, organizing collapse aware leadership meetings to explore collaboration and develop ways to meet heightened times of crisis. We've got to catch each other. Organising talks and people's assemblies on collapse. So uh, Glastonbury's ahead of the game. Thank you, Indra and others. Uh, and on specific relevant local issues. To do this, we need mental well-being. So I'm so glad that today is being used to support uh, the mental health processes locally. We need co-liberation and collaborative practices. By co-liberation, I'm talking about pathways for addressing the issues of power and privilege as they show up in us. And we need to find ways of supporting villages of mental wellness. That book I've mentioned twice already, Hospice in Modernity, she thinks the collapse will come. It'll be mostly shown by our mental health breakdowns. You know, that's what we're in. So how do we take care of each other in that? How do we be a village? You know, if one of your friends is in a crisis... And, and you're like, fuck, you know, I've already got enough on my plate. You, we can't do this one-to-one. We need more flow. It needs more of us to be in groups together. Uh, I just want to send love and blessings to the male bodies here and that basis, actually, because the way the patriarchy in particular smashes and separates our men is so abusive. And, uh, yeah, th- th- that, that need for men to reconnect in their ways is central here as well. We need to get rebellion ready, interlocal resistance and direct action. I talk about, history of, talk about the history of local and wider resistance to inspire actions on specific local issues that might benefit from civil disobedience approaches. I think we can always focus on the banks to tell the story of economics and debt-based finance systems and what they're also funding. Here's one. Here's a challenge for you, uh, Indra, actually. I really think it's time to do collective non-payment of council tax. Uh, And I think certain councillors might back that uh, if the money was then pulled together and the People's Assembly decided how it was being spent. Maybe the mental health services need even more money. You know, maybe uh, we want to do some insulation of some properties or buy buy something out, put it towards a common in project, etc. We've got to build our muscle of debt refusal. Also, potential water bill payment strikes. You know, why are we paying these people? Come on, it's a joke, isn't it? And you can do this by conditional commitment, which just means I'll do it if 50 people join me. You don't don't have to just start it on your own. Uh, We can join local positive direct actions, you know, the, the folks that are taking care of our water, our food, community safety, and so on. I really love the work of Mary Reynolds. Do you know that work, We Are the Ark? I've been told off by the Daily Mail. I ought to be really ashamed for my messy garden. I actually had a sign up. This is an ark, you know, acts of restorative kindness. We can give our gardens, at least in part, back to nature, grow food. And I I think there's something about the agency of that that's that's important and shouldn't be skipped over in, in in the ways our movements want to be sort of, oh, you know, we did this amazing action, it went viral. Yeah, that you know, it helps get the message. The simple act of letting your garden wild and the hedgehogs coming back was one of the most joyful things in my last few years, the baby hedgehogs, weren't they? Gorgeous. Um, so this local linking. So we, our communities need to link to our family across the world. We probably want to do some work on this whiteness thing that's come up a lot today, and I really hope nobody feels any shaming around that. It's not where this is coming from. It's about moving through the system in us. And um, we're working in XR being the change with our International Solidarity Network and creating uh, ways to do this linking. There are Global South communities of resistance that have been around for centuries that we can learn so much from. And we want to be mindful of the way that resistance gets NGOized, you know, turned into something that's a bit of a sort of spectacle. 
And that's going to require proper dialogue and practices that prepare the ground. We want to be supporting our local trade unions and strikes. So there's lots and lots of practical things. That's just my take at the minute. And these practical ways to face life and face the collapse together. This is one way of how we might break together. So I want to end by offering a prayer of dedication because this is a time where the magic source, the spirit, is the thing that the other, the system doesn't have. Yeah. Uh, we dedicate our lives to hospicing the systems of destruction, including within ourselves, to resisting harm, to protecting and building islands of sanity, sanctuary and sanctity. We ask for our arrogance, based in separation and fear, to be released. We ask that we can forgive ourselves and each other. May we remember who we are, feel where we belong, and see with new eyes. May we trust in the mystery, in aliveness, and in love. Thank you. Now here's a song from Small Island, Big Song. It's called Tao Tana, and the singers are Vauteani and Luke. Song is Tautama, which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet? No u Yamarirete matai Yaparemo de moana No u Yamarirete matai Yahayata ue proya ueta utama This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. This is Professor Jim Bendel in Bali. His new book is called Breaking Together, 
a freedom-loving response to collapse. Yeah, I'm a bit heartbroken as to how bad uh, government is becoming in most parts of the world, um, no matter who gets elected, um, and how captured regulatory institutions are, and and how the mainstream media uh, seem to straitjacket conversations of political possibility. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I, I've, you know, I could come up with lots of ideas and why bother? Because none of them are going to happen. <laughs> that's, you know, and that, 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 that's, that's where I've got to. So it's, it's, um, and I don't, I don't speak as if I've got some boogeyman idea of elites, you know, uh, I know lots of people who are, high up in government, high up in the UN, high up in World Economic Forum, high up in, in, in international corporations, high up or in charge of international NGOs. And um, I don't have much positive stuff to talk to them about. I think they're lying to themselves. Uh, they just don't want to see either how bad things are or the reasons for it. And those that I know that say, yeah, they kind of agree with me have got different priorities now, their garden and their kids. So I'm appalled at what happens. I don't see any leadership coming from, from there. For me, it's just a question of how do we stop them doing worse things? So yeah, I could come up, I could say, look, you've got to do something about the monetary system. There's no point in doing everything if we're going to have an expansionist monetary system that's going to dr keep driving us towards ever more consumption. Um, it's a suicidal system, given the, the, the current uh, environmental context. I could be uh, talking about we need we need to power down. We can't pretend that we can just transition our fossil fuels. Um, we could be talking, therefore, about unprecedented levels of economic wealth redistribution, because you just are not going to have any legitimate case for making poor people poorer. So you have to start at the top. This is the problem, though. This isn't like just a mistake or an accident. This is designed that sort of this way. We have a corrupt system of governance where those who can afford the best lobbyists and get the, the, you know, the best PR then just get government policies and government budgets on their side. Here's the late Professor Will Steffen, top climate scientist, with the Climate Council. What the world needs right now is science. Science sees the world as it is, not as we want it to be. Climate change, it's happening. We need science now to tell us about the solutions. This is why what we do at the Climate Council is so important. I spent my life working out how the world works. It's the only planet we know that has life. Life has helped shape this system for three and a half billion years. And now we are a critical part of driving planetary level changes. We're sort of in the driver's seat now. We can't sit on the sidelines anymore. If you want to solve a problem, you have to take some leadership and fight for a clean, sustainable future. And now, courtesy of Nick Breeze, who gave us permission from Climate Gen to play his short version of the talk with Julia Steinberger. In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Professor Julia Steinberger, a researcher in ecological economics and industrial ecology at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Julia gives us an in-depth look at how insidious the behaviour of the fossil fuel industries really is. Their strategy is to demoralise and undermine us, to ensure that we no longer strive to get rid of their destructive products. Importantly, we discuss the Energy Charter Treaty, or ECT, that is currently being used by the fossil fuel industry to undermine efforts to get rid of fossil fuel infrastructure. No matter how daunting all this may be, it is imperative that collectively we do what we can to brighten the future outlook. As Julia says, the hour is always darkest before dawn. The summary version is edited from the full interview, included are the key points from the discussion, and the full version can be accessed by all YouTube and Patreon members. Thank you for listening. Julia, welcome to the Climate Gen podcast. I want to start by asking you, from your research, what do you see as the obstacles to real mitigation and eventually living within set limits? Hi, Nick. So I think that there are a couple of major reasons that we haven't been able to do more. 
and really sort of face the problem. I think the first one has to do with not recognizing the central role played by the fossil fuel industry. So I think that a lot of people from policymakers to media, pundits, journalists, to uh, climate scientists themselves really just hoped that the fossil fuel industry could be convinced that climate change is real, it's a real problem, and that they should be on the right side of history somehow and reorient their industry to towards renewables and other kinds of products. And the fact is that the fossil fuel industry, as we now know, um, not only knew about climate change way back when, but they had better climate models than, you know, university scientists or the IPCC. So this is something we know from a recent article by Jeffrey Supran, Naomi Oreskes, and Stefan Ramstorff in Science Magazine. And so the, the lesson from that, I think, is really that th this industry should never have been taken seriously as a partner. They're not energy companies. That was this illusion that you get from models where you say, oh, well, you make one kind of energy, well, you could make another kind of energy. But that's not how these companies operate. They really identify with their products, and they really identify with petroleum, gas, and coal. And for them, that's the name of the game. They don't want to switch to the other companies, and they have the political power to enforce dependency on their products through regulatory means, through state capture, through getting subsidies. So they're really very good at sort of making themselves the sort of the spider at the heart of the web and just getting resources and power and influence and keeping their business model going. The second biggest problem is refusing to think about reducing demand. So there's been this, again, this illusion or ideology, in this case, it's much more of an ideology and a worldview that says that growth is progress and that growing energy use is progress, is human development, is emancipation, is how we make the world a better place. And that's absolutely not true. So that's what my research looks at is how we can reduce demand and live good or better lives. And that's entirely possible because we have lots of technologies and ways of doing things very, very differently that would allow us to reduce demand and change demand. In the case of uh, food, for instance, change towards plant-based diets and reduce energy demand. And the fact that we've had this ideology that's that said that demand growth was untouchable, that it was impossible to do research on it and be taken seriously, it was impossible to write it about it in the IPCC reports, that has made our life a lot harder in terms of trying to get those policies passed. So policies around energy sufficiency and demand reductions. So that's, uh, I would say that those are the two main things, the role of the fossil fuel industry and uh, the possibility of demand reduction. Okay. And you mentioned your research about uh, living well within these sort of limits. Can you talk a little bit about how you would apply that? Because going back as well to the fossil fuel industry being at the center of this web and being so powerful, does your research suggest a way through that? So there, there's two different things. One is the possible world, which is where we observe, you know, what's happening in the world around us. And we see that certain countries, certain households live quite good lives at much, much lower resource use than, you know, even their, their national averages or global averages. So that's something that we can, uh, we can definitely observe and in the reality that we know it's happening. And we can also model what would be possible based on the efficiency trajectory of existing technologies. And we can really see that it is possible to live better with less, and it would be possible to live better with a lot less in the future. The other aspect of reality is how do we face the fossil fuel industry? And that's a much taller order. I think one of the things it really requires is exposing them, either through research, through investigative journalism, through media reporting, and also through the lawsuits that are happening now. So right now, they've been spending a lot of their time building up what we call social license, which is the social license to operate. And that social license did not, does not have a reason to exist. They have been acting in such a way that their social license should be removed. But I think that that's much more of a communicative challenge, making people aware of what these products are doing and the fact that they knew about this and that they were collaborating with the automotive industry to fudge the results and all of this stuff. So all of these things need to be exposed and for people to understand that that this is not a good actor. This is not; These are not good faith actors. The emissions curve is still sort of going up or it may be stabilizing, but we've reached a point now in 2023 where we're going to a COP where the president is literally the oil boss. That's kind of symbolic of the political failure really to tackle the problem. We're treating them like partners when, you're, when you've when you highlighted the reasons why yeah. we shouldn't. 
And I just want to know what you think of the role of personal agency when we see the political failure to really get to grips with it. And there's a lot of people who are saying, as individuals, we can't really do anything. But what do you see as the role of personal agency in all of this? Going to to what you said, which is very important about the next COP, so the next round of climate negotiations being run by an oil man. You know, that's literally what he is. He's an oil man. He's the head of the national oil company, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. So I think that one of the things we can see is we can see the arc of struggle as described or by Gandhi. It's not a direct quote, but it sort of encapsulates what he was thinking is, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And we're definitely, I mean, we've been, the, the ignoring thing happened, the laughing at, you know, sort of the overt climate denial happened. And this is the fight, right? This is an overt fight. This is the fossil fuel industry, oil companies trying to take over climate action, uh, you know, trying to enforce climate inaction, basically, by taking over uh, key processes. Um, I was part of the IPCC as a lead author. And, you know, the oil companies would comment on our text and say, you know, delete this paragraph. It's like, do you got a reason? You know, is that, a, is that a, do you have a scientific reason why this paragraph should be deleted? Is there any factual thing that's incorrect in it? No, just delete. It's like, well, no, then that if you don't, you know, we don't have to do what they say, right? But I think you, you see this sort of confrontation coming up very, very strongly. And I think that One of the most important things that people can do in their personal life is be part of that confrontation actively. So be part of any of the activist groups that are basically standing up in the sense, you know, on the more sort of spicy side, you have Just Stop Oil or the direct action groups like Extinction Rebellion and so on, Fridays for Future, various kinds of other groups that do more sort of either lobbying or the lawsuits, which are very important. So Client Earth, there's the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is an excellent initiative to take get involved in because it's really trying to make the fossil fuel industry appear in international diplomacy as the you know grand villain that it is, much like nuclear weapons. So I think the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is a really excellent initiative to get involved in. One thing you mentioned recently, which I found quite fascinating, was about the Energy Charter Treaty. Yes. And it struck me this is something that really needs to be on people's radar much Absolutely. more. Can you give us an overview of just what it is and the role it's playing at the moment of protecting this sort of status quo with the fossil fuel companies? So the Energy Charter Treaty um, started out its life as a European treaty that also included the Eastern Bloc. It now includes a couple of other countries like Japan and I think Australia. And it's trying to also expand into Africa, which is really bad. It's exactly like the tobacco industry where the Marlboro man never died. He just moved to Africa. And the tobacco industry moved to Africa and tried to make lots of African people dependent on cigarettes and die with lung cancer. And the same is now happening with the fossil fuel industry. So the Energy Charter Treaty started out as a way for Western Europe to guarantee that they would pay for investment in pipelines from the Eastern Bloc to Western Europe. And that treaty basically doesn't have a purpose to exist anymore. We're not in that kind of situation anymore. But what it's been used as, it's been used as a vehicle, as a as an instrument to for fossil fuel companies to stop climate action. And the way it works is that if a fossil fuel company is in one country, let's say Switzerland, for reasons that will become clear, and the Danish government decides that they want to do something differently, or the Italian government decides that they want to act on climate and they don't want to have any more drilling in the Adriatic Sea, for instance. Well, that company can sue in a lawsuit, that's a binding lawsuit, they can sue sovereign countries in the rest of Europe to stop them from having this climate action, and they sue them for lost profits. And the example of Italy in the Adriatic Sea is a real example. A UK company called Rockhopper sued the Italian government because the Italian government said, guess what, guys, no more drilling in the Adriatic Sea. And because Rockhopper had been exploring, like they'd gone over, you know, with a ship like a couple of times with a sonar or something. Um, And they were able to sue the Italian government for hundreds of millions of dollars or euros or whatever and win. They won. The Italian government has has to pay them for lost profit because Rockhopper said that they would have drilled and made that much money and the treaty agreed with them. So the tribunal set up by the treaty, which is a very untransparent process, agreed with, uh, with Rockhopper. And you know, the worst part of it is that Italy wasn't even in the treaty at the time when this lawsuit happened. 
Italy had already left the treaty, but the treaty has a 20-year sunset clause, which means that it's still binding for 20 years after any sovereign country leaves it. So that means that this treaty by itself is enough to stop the Paris Agreement from happening. And it means that this treaty, not only do individual countries have to leave for it to stop, but it basically has to be dynamited on the way out, which means that a, a whole large group of countries, like the entire European Union, has to leave it. Now, the reason we know what this treaty does, because it was very not transparent and nobody really knew what it was, except that these tribunals are happening, but even that's not transparent. We don't even know how many there are what the lawsuits amounts are, we don't, it's very hard to get full information on it. It's because there was a whistleblower called Dr. Yamina Saheb. She's also an IPCC author. And she basically went to be part of that treaty to try to make it Paris compliant with the Paris Agreement and understood what it was doing and understood that it couldn't be made Paris compliant because it was basically this thing that just helped the fossil fuel industry stay in business. And we know, for instance, that the Danish environment minister, who's in charge of climate action, said that they didn't do as much as they wanted because of this treaty. So we know that it's been having this chilling effect across all of Europe. And so because of her whistleblowing and her intervention in different countries, she's been able to persuade or convince politicians in multiple countries to leave the treaty, including Spain, the Netherlands, Poland, Germany, France, and Italy, as we know, had already left. And then the European Commission was just like, okay, we all have to leave now. But Switzerland is deciding to stay in. And the reason Switzerland is deciding to stay in is because Switzerland has basically made this bargain with the devil, you know, and I'm in Switzerland right now, I live and work in Switzerland, I'm Swiss. The Switzerland has made this devil's bargain where they think that by having the headquarters of big evil companies like Glencore, for instance, or petroleum trading companies like Trafigura, that that's what our economy is built on. Our economy is built on this kind of sort of predatory financial headquarters of major dirty industries. And that we will make a lot of money if we're the last country standing that's upholding this treaty because fossil fuel companies will come to Switzerland, set up their headquarters and sue the rest of the world into climate inaction. And that's something that the Swiss government is pursuing right now. But in a very undemocratic way, because, you know, 99.9% .9 of the Swiss population has no idea that this treaty exists. And 99% of the politicians that are elected to the parliament don't know that we're part of it and don't know what it does. So this, this thing is only allowed to continue to exist because of lack of transparency and ignorance. It kind of creates a zombie fossil fuel industry where they can just keep yeah. suing for money on business that hasn't even occurred. Absolutely. And even as, as Europe pulls out, all these other countries are being conned into joining. Is that Fair. Yeah, that's that's basically what's what's going on. Is, and they're just going around the world and sort of wooing African countries, trying to convince them to join. That is going to be this great thing for them to join, that they're going to be part of the club. But it's really a coercive treaty that is anti-democratic, anti-transparent, and goes against the public interests of every single last person on the planet. If people want to learn more, Celine Keller, who's a fantastic uh, graphic artist, made a graphic novel about it called The Dawn of the ECT, which is uh, freely downloadable in multiple languages. So I recommend that. Well, that's been fantastic to speak to you. Thank you very much. It's been very insightful and uh, hopefully speak to you again in the future. Thanks, Nick. Is drinking costing you more than money? Alcoholics Anonymous provides a free and anonymous recovery service to anyone who wants to call it quits. Join millions of other alcoholics worldwide and take your first brave steps towards a new beginning. There are thousands of AA meetings happening every week across Australia. If you'd like to find your closest meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or have any questions regarding this tried and tested treatment for alcoholism, Call 1300 AA AA AA. That's 1300 22 22 22. Or visit aa.org.au. This community service announcement is sponsored by Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. I hope you enjoyed hearing the latest from the UK. Thanks to Dr. Gail Bradbrook of Extinction Rebellion at the Glastonbury Festival. And thanks to Dr. Jem Bendel in Bali.
and the Mir Forum at which he talked about his new book, Breaking Together, a freedom-loving response to collapse. And a big thanks to Nick Breeze at Climate Gen for his interview with Dr. Juliet Stein, Julia Steinberger. Check out his other podcasts at Climate Gen, and that's spelled G-E-N-N. It's all been about collapse today, but I hope this has given you the courage to create the new safer model for society now. Remember, as Julia Steinberger said, the darkest hour is before the dawn. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.